Hey everybody, this is Richard jumping in to let you know that on this episode, we talk about Amazon Prime's new TV show, The Rings of Power, and we start talking about spoilers right off the bat. So this will be your only warning. I will be including some timestamps in the show notes just to let you know exactly when we start doing that. All right. Aside from that, I just want to thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, welcome to Media Review Pod, a variety podcast of discussions, opinions, and interviews focusing on the entertainment side of media. And yes, my friends, the time has finally arrived. After much anticipation, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, has premiered on Amazon Prime, and we are here to talk about it. And when I say we, I mean me, your host, Richard Santiago, and my good friend, film and TV journalist, critic, film festival programmer, and Tolkien enthusiast, Dr. Ritesh Mehta. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. Uh, I always get a little thrown off when you call me doctor because you're the only one who calls me that anymore, but I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, well, well, that makes me special uh, then. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we were waiting for this. This is amazing and looking forward to talking about it because this means so much to both of us, I know. So I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, last time we talked, um, I know you were preparing for a film festival. And I just wanted to briefly talk about it, see how it went, uh, how how the experience was. So just just tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you for asking and following up on that. Yeah, um, yeah so I am the co-director of programming at the Indian Film Festival of Los Angeles. And we returned in, at the end of April um, after three years uh, of a three-year hiatus because of the pandemic, uh, which was wonderful to be back in person. We were only in person this time, not virtual. Mm -hmm. And we were also celebrating our 20th year. We are amongst, uh, with the New York Film Festival, New York Film Festival, we are um, the oldest South Asian film festival in the U.S. So nice. it, you know, so it was like a, a double return, right? So that was great. And uh, yeah, it went off really well. It was four days. Um, I think one thing we learned was that people were really hungry to meet. Like April 2022, uh, I think people, you know, uh, after the wave of Omicron, mm -hmm. uh, people were coming out slowly. And um, so there was a real hunger to meet. So especially for our networking events, um, like the South Asian community of writers, directors, creators, but also just like... In, cinema enthusiasts uh, showed up in big in big numbers mm. um there's also a shift i think uh, in the role of festivals because there's so much content available that even a few program we had a fantastic lineup it was a smaller lineup but we had like eight of the strongest features from south asia mm. and um you know it's it's going to be a challenge moving forward for all festivals I think to attract audiences because I think festivals have to be doing more than just screening films. And I think that was one of the takeaways we had mm. is we want more community events. We want, we, we, we can't sell people, even if you have the best films, like right now people have eight streamers that they can you know, sub subscribe to each month. Yeah. So, yeah, I know. you know, like to tell people, come watch the special movie at our festival is like you've got to scream so much louder than a streamer is doing through their marketing to watch new 
Like, you know, no one knows the new stuff on Netflix anymore. No one knows the new stuff on Peacock. It's just like hard to keep track. I mean, with Lord of the Rings and on Prime, yes, has been like a marketing machinery for Yeah, for well they, they have the big bucks and and the way to promote it. I mean, they have they have Internet Movie Database, which is owned by Amazon. They have Amazon where you buy stuff and they have Amazon video, Prime Video where, where you see the stuff plus the boxes where you get your stuff and the the the, the cars that that drive up they have you know rings of power all splayed on top of so yeah they have a huge marketing machine and yeah so so okay yeah. so so what what else would you be including in in your film festival aside I think from, so from just the screenings way, yeah so one thing we announced at the closing night was uh, we're going to start a mentorship initiative, uh, which we are still figuring out. But it's like going to be for uh, probably South Asian filmmakers and the and the South Asian filmmakers in the diaspora, because the last six or seven years has seen so many uh, mentorship initiatives, either in the form of labs or fellowships or residencies across the world, especially here in Los Angeles for different uh, underrepresented communities. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if uh, the Indian Film Festival of LA, we also want to kind of throw our hat in the ring because we have 20 years of alumni to draw from. And uh, we also have built up connections over the years in the industry. Now, for example, we kind of recognized Bela Bajaria, who's now the head of television at Netflix. We gave her an executive leadership award back in 2011. Mm. So, you know, so we've been cultivating relationships. So I think because we want our festival to be more of, more of a communal experience, uh, and we also want to kind of go on to the next stage now that we finished 20 years to also take a more active role in um, helping our filmmakers and other South Asian creators uh, to take, you know, to kind of work with IFLA, kind of similar to how Sundance has been doing with the Episodic TV Lab for eight years now. Of course, Sundance Feature Film Lab has been doing it since 1981. Mm-hmm. We kind of want to do, um, you know, some some sort of mentorship initiative. And also we, maybe we, we're still figuring it out because we're a little bit on a hiatus right now, but I just want to kind of have like a big day of like, not just like have like one networking session, but like maybe have a whole day of events, um, not just panels, because I think there's so many panels everywhere, which people can often just watch panels on YouTube later on. So maybe like pitch sessions, because, you know, I went for Outfest and I went for Palm Springs Short Fest. And they both had pitch sessions at the festival where mm-hmm. the audience was part of the pitches. And that was great. It was like so well organized. In, in a matter of one hour, you can have like Palm Springs, the way they did it was they had a panel for the first half an hour of development uh, development executives talking about pitching. Yeah. And then they had uh, three pre-chosen Outfest, uh, no, Outfest, short fest creators um or short fest filmmakers who were present in palm springs that that for that weekend and they pitched their ideas five minutes each and then five minutes response from the panel but the audience was there it was like in the small conference room and it was just really electric because we got to see the feedback in live and like in, in, in real time yeah. and i think yeah so something like that where people feel the sense of participation is very uh-huh. important yeah yeah i think um First of all, it's a sense of community because, you know, everybody is basically in the same boat. But for newbies and for people who have never done it and are in a festival for the first time, it's a chance for them to get to see 
more or less how it goes when you pitch to executives or how these other people have prepared to make their pitch and any um, any feedback that they get is it's not just for whoever's pitching but for whoever's in the audience watching and I think that's fantastic yeah that's great so we're gonna try to do that and um, because I think now like literally I saw two festivals that I work with do it. And I'm looking at the programs of other festivals and everyone's doing something or the other of that. Some, of course, the um, the, o, the OG festivals, um, which are very famous, like they've been doing versions of that, like, you know, a Berliner talent, for example. But yeah, we want to kind of do it now at our, our local and regional level as well. Okay. Was there any movie that stood out in, in the festival that you ran in, in April? Yes. There was a film that was a true discovery by us, by our programmers, and I feel very proud about it. It's a very brutal story, a, a, a Punjabi language story called Jaggi, which is by a complete newbie filmmaker who lives in a small town in Punjab, which is a state in North India. Um, and uh, he sent us this kind of brutal feature about um this protagonist who is um you know abused in his village because he's impotent mm. and he is kind of, kind of inter inter interrogating the boundaries of masculinity sexuality and even homosexuality um it's a very powerful film you know a little bit rough around the edges being a feature debut but we were so surprised that the filmmakers couldn't come there was a big problem with the kind of coming out of the pandemic the challenges were that we wanted we invited all the filmmakers but India, like the visa processing for USA in India was three months. So, oh, wow. you know, no one had time to come except for those who already had visas. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he couldn't come, but we were shocked that it won two awards. It won the audience award. We was really wow. surprised that such a dark, brutal story, like relentless in its brutality, won the audience award, which we were not expecting. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also won another prestigious award. So we were just quite happy. And I, because... Since then, it was a world premiere at IFLA and it's gone on to many, many festivals because of the awards that it got. So I think I feel pretty proud that the filmmaker wrote the most heartfelt letter to me afterwards, the email and um, thanking the programming team. And, you know, sometimes you can just make a difference to one filmmaker's life. Like we pretty much launched his career and that's what we want to do with the mentorship initiative as well. But it feels really good when we can just like, he was, he was, uh, declined from many other festivals and we took it and you know our entire programming team loved it which is so rare to have all the programmers with distinct opinions agree on a film that yeah. that quickly so yeah it felt really special all right all right now um you told me about this film the bengali that is going to be showing in several festivals yeah so it's actually uh releasing uh this week uh, in New York and LA, it's a very small documentary. Okay. Uh, by uh, by Kaveri Kaul, uh, who's in New York. She's a filmmaker from the Indian diaspora, born in Kolkata, India, but now lives in New York. And she follows a woman, uh, a South Asian woman in New Orleans, who's been like, whose family has been living in New Orleans since 150 years, and they were part of like the oldest immigrants in the late 18 hundreds who moved to the u.s and no one knows the stories that you know if you look at immigrant stories in the u.s right now uh for, for, from certain countries they all kind of focus on the moment after 1965 which at, at which point the u.s kind of changed its policies and many many immigrants arrived in large numbers but yeah. i don't even know when i watched this uh this documentary called the bengali um that there were there was immigration back in the late 1800s 
and they settled in the black community of New Orleans. And, you know, to know a story about, um, and it's a story about like this woman who after Katrina realized that she wants to kind of explore her roots and explore her fa- her great great grandfather's arrival in the US as so she kind of travels back to India. So it's a very touching, um, touching story. And we almost programmed it. We just ran out of programming slots. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't invite it. But I wrote to the filmmaker saying, you know, if you're releasing the US um, or in LA, like, let, let us know. So we're, it's releasing in New York for one week on the 9th and on in LA for one week at the Lemley Royal in West Los Angeles for one week. And, um, Look out for IFLA social media because we'll be posting a discount code. And we strongly encourage you to visit because uh, to watch the film. It's a very touching kind of journey of the South Asian woman uh, from the kind of Black uh, South Asian diaspora in the U.S. Uh, going back to India. So, yeah, and, and the director is going to be there in person for the Q&A for the first two days. All right. So that's the Bengali and it'll be showing... In November? On the 16th. No, no, no. In September. Oh, so September. two weeks from now. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so two weeks from now, one, one, this coming next Friday on the 9th in New York, just is getting a very, very limited release. And then on the 16th uh, for one week in Los Angeles. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is this little Indian film. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this little Indian film that I happened to watch because um, there was some chatter on... I want to say it was Twitter uh, from people saying that it was on Netflix and it was pretty cool. And and so I go, all right. I mean, I think I've only watched maybe one other Indian film. I don't even know if it was. Was it Indian? Um, it's called Monsoon Wedding. It came out. Yes. It's, it's Indian, right? It, yeah, 2001. It came out the same year as, uh, as Lagan did, which was like the last... Uh, film to be nominated uh, to the Oscars from India. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so two thousand one wedding is in it's a North in it's set in Delhi, so that's in North India, and yeah. it's in Hindi and English. Okay. Yes. Yes. And uh, by the way, that's one of the things that surprised me about that movie because it was my first experience watching an Indian movie, and my first experience of watching a truly bilingual film. Where really? yes, where characters just switch from one language to the other mm-hmm. without any, you know, it's just the way they speak. Uh, the way I speak to my kids, you know, I speak in English, I speak in Spanish, um, and it's normal, right? Um, uh, same thing with my parents and and for for people around here as well. I mean, I I speak Spanglish, right? Um, but. I had never seen something like that in a movie, in a narrative as well, and it, I was I was really into it. I said because it made me feel like I was watching something real. I wasn't just watching uh, actors and just any story. It felt real. It felt lived in. Um, even even when that movie is a little bit um, uh, magical and has a bunch of happenstance. Um, that fact that the way they communicated uh, made it feel real for me. So I I really enjoy that movie, by the way. Um, So that was my first experience with anything having to do with the Indian uh, film industry. Aside from that, I don't think I've seen anything else, honestly. 
I have seen snippets here and there of uh, other things and and Bollywood films and all of that. Um, but sitting down and watching an Indian film, that was the only my only experience. So I said, all right, I'll give this movie a chance. Now the movie's called RRR or Triple R or however you want to say it. Um, and <laughs> wow, uh, it's what on Netflix. your experience? Oh it's my a, God. It's on, ne- on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Okay. And I, I, I have a, a pretty big screen. So um, I watched it on, on my big screen. And I was completely blown away because this movie is how how to describe this movie? It's it's a mixture of bromance and homoerotic scenes and uh, 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 freedom and. Uh, um, people rebelling against their government and a superhero. It, it's just everything meshed into one. It's it's the most bro-macho action movie you'll ever see this year. Um, but it, it also has hints of uh, tenderness and friendship and love, and it's gory at points. And it has this amazing like 30-minute dance sequence it, yes, it's it, it not just to not it, it, dude this was <laughs> this movie was everything it was everything all rolled into one and i think it's fantastic i think it it was a little uh, something that that took me out a little bit was that it was dubbed from its original language right. and and so that's kind of it's kind of tricky um because not only am I reading the subtitles, but I'm also looking at the actor who is actually not in sync with what they're saying. So that's kind of weird. Um, but aside from that, it's thoroughly enjoyable. It's three hours of nonstop awesomeness. So I, I highly recommend this movie to anybody. Um, I'm pretty sure you guys will enjoy Anybody who's used to watching any Marvel superhero movies they'll probably enjoy this one um so you ritesh have you seen i'm pretty sure you've seen this movie yes yes i saw it uh at the alamo draft house in downtown la nice in the special encore encore spelled as (laughs) e-n-c-o-r-r-r-e this okay this is like i don't even know i mean we could do a whole episode on this i'm not and then i wouldn't say i'm the expert there's some fantastic podcasts out there on rrr Mm -hmm. but oh my god it is such a it's an insane blast to watch us and western audiences discover this film and go gaga over it and there's so much very quick context so this film is a Telugu language film. Now, India has, as as, as people know, like people have, India has several languages. Um, you know, Hindi is the so-called national language, but there's like then most of the southern part of the country, which consists of four states, uh, they do not like Hindi is not widely spoken there. In fact, some of the languages there are kind of even more ancient, like Tamil and Telugu, and there's also like a somewhat very rough racial divide between the North and the South as well. So also Indian cinema in the U.S. and the U.K. has been 
conflated wrongly with Bollywood. Bollywood is just the Hindi language cinema that comes out of Mumbai, mm-hmm. right? It, it's extremely prolific, but uh, you know, when you look at the total output of Indian cinema, Bollywood and Hindi language cinema, which is like the mainstream Hindi language cinema. Now, what the film that you watched, Monsoon Wedding, in two thousand and one, is Mira Nair. Now, she's from the Indian diaspora. She kind of grew up in the east in Eastern Africa before moving to New York. Uh, and you know, by way by way of London, I think so. Monsoon Wedding is kind of like an independent film. Mm-hmm. It's not like mainstream Bollywood, uh, and many independent films, especially diaspora films, mix mix Hindi and English. And actually, that's how we speak. In like, you know, I'm kind of trilingual, and uh, which is pretty common. Like, you kind of speak your mother tongue, you speak English, and you speak Hindi, and um, that's pretty common. So we, that's how we speak, you know, uh, in general. So. A lot, a lot of Indian films won't show that. They'll just show one language primarily, right? So what you saw, Monsoon Wedding, was, you know, a good example of a very well done bilingual film um, fr- from the independent movie world from a famous author, right? Uh, from a famous filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, RRR is a maximalist South Indian Telugu language film. <laughs> if you've seen his previous work, uh, since the last eight years, uh, the biggest hitters, like the biggest films out of India, have, have been RRR. But before that, there's two films called Bahubali 1 and Bahubali 2. They both explore, uh, which I haven't seen because they're OTT crazy and like they're also like super bro and macho. And, and those were... I haven't, so I can't compare RRR to people who have seen those films as well and mm-hmm. understand his work. But, you know, in 2012, this director, Rajamouli, SS Rajamouli, who's one of the R's, like, so RRR also refers to the R of the director and the R's, of the, which, are the, which are the names of the two actors, right? Mm-hmm. The two, uh, like, to the two actors in the bromance. Um so he kind of did this independent film well, in the in the adjacent, because also probably Studio Money in there called uh, Endiran. Uh, not I'm not Endiran. Oh God, it was called. I forget the name. We played it at the Indian Film Festival because we don't play mainstream. Like we would not play RRR at the Indian Film Festival of LA because we play independent films. Yeah, RRR is like a major studio. It's like the most expensive film made in India, right? It's interesting we're talking about it in, in the same episode as like the Amazon TV series, <laughs> which is the most expensive. So I guess you're talking about maximalism here in terms of financials. But RRR, I went in not because of the noise coming out of India, because it was a big hit when it released in India. But because, oh my God, like there's all these people, like critics in the US that I follow going crazy about it. And I was like, what is happening? And because they, there was this revival on June 1st and June 2nd, um, which is kind of orchestrated by the distribution company, by the, by the distributor along with a film consultant in Houston uh, who's been following South Indian. He's actually Latino, but he's been following South Asian cinema for a very long, South Indian, not even South Asian, South Indian cinema hmm. uh, for a very long time. So they kind of did this really interesting, I don't know how they managed it. That's a case study actually for, for distributors. They kind of orchestrated a revival and many film festival critics, uh, film festival programmers, film critics, they all kind of got in the bandwagon. So this became a moment and um, it played at the AMC in, um, in, uh, at the Grove. It played at Alamo Draft House. And all the opinion makers and cultural taste makers were going to watch RRR. And people were talking about, like, you know, loud applause on the, uh, in the, like something that you would hear about 
in theaters in India of how the South Indian fandom for movies mm-hmm. is bigger than like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, like it's South Indian, South Indian fans of, of Telugu language and Tamil language films. It's mixed up with their politics because some of the greatest actors are also, they also go on to become like the, the, the chief minister, right? So like, it's just really, really fascinating the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. RRR comes out of that tradition and he's mastered VFX. He's mastered maximalism. It's insane stunts. Like I, there's this one shot, as you know, of animals, which I won't, I don't want to kind of, divulge it for mm-hmm. those who haven't seen it but it is like you know what kind of imagination does it take to you know it, it's insane but if you, if you examine the film I've only seen it once but if you examine the film shot to shot scene to scene there's a coherence actually surprisingly in the action which is difficult to pull off you can go completely bonkers for example Age of Ultron when I watched it gave me a headache because I don't know what was going on. And it was just like, you know, it was, it was, it was not legible. Right. And for me, mm-hmm. but, and I'm not a huge fan of Marvel. Like it, you have to drag me to watch like, you know, Ms. Marvel is an exception, but like, otherwise most of it, like, you have to drag me to the theaters to watch them. I know, I know that's like not in the spirit of what you love. Um, but this this film RRR the action was legible the story was interesting they tried to they tried to address the age old issue of caste and colonialism with this friendship at the center mm-hmm. and it's a very it's a, it was like you know we a tall order and the, the the politics of it has not translated like the political problems with it have has not translated in the fanfare in the US but I am okay with that because. I, you know, even especially as my position as the co-director of programming at IFLA and as a, you know, as a, as a cinephile from South Asia, I want people to know that there's more languages out of India, first of all, than just Hindi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some people still say Hindu instead of Hindi, for example. But um, <laughs> these film industries are incredible and they have their own history. And they're, like the Telugu and Tamil language industries are probably larger than other major industries, like mm-hmm. other, larger than the French language industry, for example, right? So it to me, it's like a major moment, just as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was such a major moment in the early 2000s and Parasite was such a major moment, part of the ongoing Korean wave that started in the early part of the previous decade. Mm-hmm. I think this was a major moment of teaching because even though a lot of my friends who are, Critics in India are very skeptical and even resist RRR probably being India's submission to the Oscars and maybe even getting submitted, even if it misses the international language uh, nomination. Um, you know, it can be nominated directly in the crafts categories, for example, right? Because it's like some of the crafts are really, really fantastic. Um, I'm open to that. I'm open to people not fully understanding the political context because, in my view, you have to start somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And like now that you've watched RR, like take yourself as an example, I would imagine you'd be more open to watching more Indian films, right? And to learn more about um, Indian cinema. And similarly, like for me, like I am pro-international cinema. Mm-hmm. A lot of my work with film festivals, I love watching features from Indonesia or you know Kenya. I, I think we have. I think we, you know, if if sorry, if storytelling and cinema are so important, let's take responsibility for the kind of stories we tell. Sometimes a film will be problematic and it may not, you won't understand. It's, it's impossible to understand the politics of a country as large as India 
um, and understand what the problematic, you know, like, you know, there was a bromance, but like by the end of the film, it becomes something else. It becomes godly in a way that kind of reinforces the dominant ideology. But I don't expect everyone to know that. Similarly, if, if I watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I don't know what I might have missed that an audience in China may not have, that may have appreciated. Similar with Parasite. So I think we've got to start off somewhere. Let it become part of the discourse. Let people, like, I mean, I think you're a cinephile already, so you would be more open. But people who are not open, uh, if if this gets nominated for the Oscar, I think it makes the field larger. And with that, people like me can come in and we can weigh and, you know, through media education, through, uh, through reviews, through articles, through podcasts, we can help people understand like the nuances but i think this is great this is great and uh, so this, this is basically what, what i'm saying is that i my position is slightly different from many of my friends who are film critics in india who are very very resistant to this very politically problematic film uh larger than life um becoming such a big hit with the western audience because they worry that um that the power dynamics in the film will be lost but i think we've got to start mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm well, what I've I've seen so after after watching the movie, I started doing a little bit of research into some of the things that are ex- exposed in the in the in the film, and one of the major things that I saw, as far as politically motivated things go, is kind of an erasure of the whole peaceful uh, um, movement by Gandhi. Um, uh, during the the British colonialism era, and the way that they try to portray themselves right now is trying to forget all of that and uh, showing people that we aren't weak. We are, you know, the macho, strong guys, and this is how we should move from now forward from now on. And I get that. I get that. I get that people are upset about that and. Anything that tries to erase history kind of sucks, especially with with a movie so big. Because this this movie has been huge, um, and what what I always say is, you have to remember that cinema is still a means of communication. And so, if there is a big movement, um, a big political movement pushing this ideology and trying to erase the past, then mistakes will be made. And um, that's why I started looking into uh, the the background of this movie. I don't want to say much because I don't want to spoil the movie. Uh, but I, I do know that there have been um, issues, political issues with the movie. However, I do understand what you're saying. Um, the fact that this movie has been so huge means that many people here in the West have been able to experience a movie that otherwise they wouldn't see. Have to yeah. have been able to experience a, a culture that, in my case, I see so far away, right? Because it's it's not mainstream here. Um, so I yeah. I definitely appreciated that from watching this movie. And what I le- what I appreciate is that like the tastemakers who are taking it on are usually responsible film critics who will listen to the pushback and then they will qualify they will qualify how much they love the film. So, for example, Anne Thompson from IndieWire, she put it in her top, like, her number one film from the first six months in the U.S. Mm. Number one. 
right? And but in one of her articles, she referred it to as a Bollywood film. So immediately, I went on Twitter and I kind of just told her, "This is Tollywood. This is Telugu language." Mm-hmm. I've been kind of doing that with like three or four film critics. Like my my my, I've I've done, I've done all these tweets where like Clayton Davis from Variety. I've kind of he posted an article, like very reverent article, but then again, like there's this conflation. So my goal and my job is like make sure that the, the tastemakers who are influencing a large audience, I can try to correct them mm-hmm. so that message like you know just do whatever little i can like if it just takes one tweet to kind of point out one detail then that's my job right but um as you said like it, people will hopefully people will do some research they will learn more and um you know then it's also a chance about learning about world history and colonialism everyone talks about colonialism but it's a very specific colonialist story mm-hmm. which had uh, there, there were many freedom leaders gandhi was one of them but like you know similar to like the 1960s and 70s portraits through cinema it's malcolm x is the violent revolutionary and then you know uh, martin luther king was like more peaceful like, and of course and we know that as a simplistic divide we've got to start somewhere right like, and it's cinema has cinema that has taken on biographies of malcolm x and martin luther king the more you watch and the more you know for example the more black storytellers will come from newer generations to tell those stories there'll be there's more nuance mm-hmm. similarly once with rrr my hope is that um there's just a greater appreciation uh, appreciation of like um the history of oppressed communities in the world and like you know and there's like for many many parts of the world population colonialism is a common experience but i think the country specific um the country specific experience of it and india casts such a huge experience and vector of oppression that um i welcome that and you know and it's also a good time because like um, Isabel Wilkerson published a book on called Cast in and you know and it was her thesis about cast in the U.S. So I think it's a good cultural moment for people to be talking about cast and understand what people how, how different authors and different people talk about cast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And speaking of this, I, I just want to jump real quick because you mentioned uh, Miss Marvel, mm-hmm. and um, I I usually do podcasts about. Marvel shows. I have a, another good buddy of mine, uh, JC. Uh, I haven't done one for Miss Marvel yet. I haven't had the time, but I do want to point it out because I think out of out of all the shows that Marvel has put out, it's one of the best. Um, and it's one of the best, not because it's so flashy, because it is, and not because it has action. It does. But it's more the story that it weaves into this super, uh, the super powered girl's life. Um, they are able to mix uh, mythology from Pakistan and history that happened uh, with the partition, and it just—I saw it with my kids. And it just gave me an opportunity to teach, which is one of my favorite things. When I watch something with my kids and they come out of it asking questions, and that's an opportunity for me to to show them and say, all right, guys, so this this really happened in real life. Let me let me show you how it went down. And so we started we started looking for um articles and for uh, video uh, documentaries about partition and how everything went down. And it was great. I just felt like 
man, Marvel did something really different with the show. N- not only was it entertaining, because it was, uh, and the cast was fantastic, but it also provided an opportunity for people to learn about a different culture and learn about history, which is super important. Um, and so you yeah. coming from India, how, how did you feel about the show? I'm going to actually be watching it for a second time tomorrow when I go to New York, like other than taking my nephews to the U S open. Yeah. <laughs> I told my sister, like block out six hours. You're going to watch Ms. Marvel <laughs> because I, you know, they grew up here in the U S and I don't think they know much about like, history in India at all like they go to a private school in New York and I don't know if you know like they may know about a little bit Indian history like Pakistan in like you know because of the U.S.'s recent history with Pakistan since since independence well Mm -hmm. not recent for the life of Pakistan right it's been such a Pakistan has been a such a strategic the like an ally for some precedents right so a lot of I would I would expect that in the general American consciousness, to the extent that Americans who I would generally say are not like um, you know are xenophobic or not that knowledgeable at least, even mm-hmm. if they want to be about uh, about other countries, um, they know Pakistan only one way. So I was really thrilled that um, first of all I need to place Ms. Marvel in the last five or six years of all the South Asian output coming out, which is focusing on stories outside of India. There's all these, like talking about mentorship programs, there's all these mentorship initiatives that now are not focusing on India anymore because India has been getting the giant share of resources and you know India has thriving film industries, right? Mm-hmm. But like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Nepal, right? Um, Afghanistan, depending on how you kind of define South Asia, um, these countries' histories have to be understood as well. So, and, you know, if you look at shows that are coming out, like Never Ever Ever, which is like one of the biggest hit South Asian shows in the U.S., right? Um, I think it's a good moment to have Miss Marvel. And a lot of my friends who are South Asian creators, like, are getting opportunities now that they never got in the first part of the previous decade. Something has shifted with Asian, South Asian, Latino. Like, there's all this, I think, you know, Hollywood is putting... Uh, it's money where its mouth is and it's with all these mentorship initiatives so it's not surprising to see such a nuanced tale come out of you know six episodes of marvel television um which hired uh, they hired a brown writer's room a brown showrunner um but like you know diversity in the brownness also because um, the, the showrunners, uh, Bilal and, oh my God, I'm completely blanking on the other showrunner, you know, they're um, of Middle Eastern or they're Arabic origin, but they hired Mira Menon, who, from USC, yeah. um, you know, as a director of the first, well, I think she was for the middle two episodes or something like that. So, and they hired like a Pakistani, like, you know, a Pakistani woman to direct episodes four. And, yes, Mira Menon directed episode three and four and then well, anyway, like there were two episodes directed by Mira Menon, two, who was Indian American, and there were two episodes directed by Charmaine Obed Chinoy, who is fr- from Pakistan. So it's fantastic to, and then the remaining two episodes were directed by the the creators of the show. Um, they had they hired Pakistani actors, they hired some Indian actors. Uh, the 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 girl that they found, Iman Vellani. 
similar to Never Ever, uh, the, 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 like the key actor, Maitre Ramakrishnan, both of them have no previous experience acting. And they were such amazing finds, which mm-hmm. just goes to show that there's all this talent out there that just needs to be found. Yeah. You know, like Iman Vilani, you will never know that she's never acted. She was not only holding her own against established veterans, but she was like giving me, I don't know, she's a she's a powerhouse, yeah. if you ask me. Like some of the readings and like her facial expressions and her understanding of a character's journey going from as a diaspora Pakistani to going back to Pakistan. And I don't know. All of it really, really worked. I'm overall very, very positive and gung-ho on the series. Yeah. Yeah, so that's Miss Marvel. You can watch it on, on uh, Disney+. Plus. I, I really enjoy that show. I am hoping that some of this transfers over to the movie that's coming out, the, the Marvels, I believe it's called. So I'll be watching out for that. Okay, Ritesh, it is time. This is our feature segment. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Rings of Power. Now, here's a little uh, synopsis of the show, which was created by Patrick McKay and John D. Payne. Uh, These first uh, episodes were directed by J.A. Bayona. Now, this is an epic drama set thousands of years before the events of Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. By the way, this synopsis comes from IMDb, so I'm I'm just reading it off IMDb. Uh, It follows an ensemble cast of characters, both familiar and new, as they confront the long-feared reemergence of evil to Middle-earth. Hmm. What could that evil be? Hmm. Uh Okay, Ritesh. After these two epic hours of this long-awaited show, what did you think about The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power? Oh my God! You feel free to cut me off because <laughs> I—it's just like there's so much, there's so many points to talk about. Um, and you know, we've talked about the Lord of the Rings. You've been kind of kind enough to invite me on your podcast. We've talked about you know, and so we both know our feelings about this world and this universe and our respective personal histories with Tolkien. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm enjoying. I'm really appreciate talking to you, especially about this again. And, you know, like, you know, I am, I think many Lord of the Rings fans, many Tolkien fans are going to be very precious and protective about any adaptation of the mythology. And, um, you know, we're living in a very different media world now than Tolkien in the first half of the previous century Mm -hmm. when he conceived it. And the idea of like a media universe and a universe of characters that the only universe that Tolkien knew about was of physics and astronomy, I would imagine. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think he thought in terms of universe and franchising and all of that. I don't know. I want to know what he thought about it, how he would describe his approach to such a large body of work and what he was doing with storytelling. But it wasn't, and even if he used the word universe, it wasn't in the same way we use it. We're we're having this discussion 20 years after Peter, um, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, which itself came after like almost half a century of the books being published. Most of the last decade, Game of Thrones was one of the most watched shows in, in, on American television. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so the idea of like fantasy has evolved so much as a genre, not only in literature, but also on television and the televisual aspect, you know, like uh, visual effects and costumes and budgets and, you know, who's financing it and who gets to tell these stories is all like this, this has been such a vital discourse. So, you know, we have to arrive at our discussion, I believe, of of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power within this particular cultural moment that it's in, with the behemoth of behemoth Amazon putting, you know, nearly $60 million as I read behind an ep behind each episode. They've already greenlit two seasons. Um, it seems like the writers have already worked on the second season already, so that I believe, again, this information is coming from, I admit, Wikipedia, so it's, you know, <laughs> a little iffy, but there's, they've given references to all these points that I'm talking about. Yep. That you know they may they want to shoot two seasons together. Um, so okay, you know the world has seen The Hobbit. The world has seen in in movies, right? In in, in cinema and tele, uh, we've seen The Hobbit three movies, and we've seen Lord of the Rings, which is one year in the third age of Middle Earth, right? The last year for the fall of Barad-dûr. Um, so. I was very excited. I went in blind, and I believe as you did. I kind of knew. I couldn't escape all the headlines. I knew that it was a second age. So I was very excited just because uh, Tolkien, at least in the main books, I know that he has many other books, which I haven't read. Like, I haven't read Unfinished Tales, for example. I haven't read uh, the book with the word children in this title. Oh, Remind children me of the name. Uh, yeah. Yes, I haven't read. You know, so I haven't read, like, the seven or eight books outside of the three or four main ones. I've read, and I think we've discussed, our, uh, I read parts of the Silmarillion. Um, so I was very excited, but I also was very cautious because I was like, I don't know, Amazon throwing money at something. I think we're right to be skeptical of, like, making sure that they're not spoiling it because, like, you know, at the very root of everything, um, our imagination of from the books matters a lot. The imagery that we conceived as kids who were reading it, um, or you know, I read the books as an adult actually, um, it matters a lot. So even if I don't know what who Feanor looks like, you know, what he looks like, for example, I had my image of him. I had my image of what the Silmarils look like. And I was very um you know, excited and nervous because I know that Peter Jackson does such a wonderful job uh, that I was hoping that, you know, there's, there is a good chance that, you know, with throwing money, you can also throw a good creative team. Mm -hmm. So when I watched, uh, I only have only watched the episodes once and they just came out last night. So there's so much to take and I'll probably going back to them like four or five times. Um, my overall impression is that I'm thrilled and excited but I'm also cautious and a little bit weary of some of the adaptations because there's some things like, you know, like it was, a, for me, I had no idea that Galadriel was such a major character. I just didn't know. I just didn't know where, where they were going to go with because you can talk, this, the second age is so vast and middle age, middle earth of the second age is different geographically Very than different. middle age of the third of the third middle earth of the third age right mm -hmm. so like literally all these regions and islands like Numenor or Beleriand that did not that don't exist in the third age so anything could have happened I didn't know what the pitches were I know that Amazon was looking for all sorts of pitches but you know it would be weird to not have Sauron in it because 
you know, if you want continuity and if you want audiences to continue, Sauron, everyone knows who the Dark Lord is. And the Dark Lord, like, you know, most most of these uh, fantasy um, adaptations have one, you know, major evil figure. So, I mean, so, okay, that's my overall kind of take going in. Uh, I, maybe I should pause and let you talk. I don't know if you want, should I talk about the specificities? Of the, keep what do you going, want to man. talk keep about? Keep going, man. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Okay, okay. So let me take a look. So, you know, when it opened, first of all, the title of the episode is Shadow of the Past, the first episode. And I was like, taken back to the novel, yeah. because that is like my favorite chapter is like, you know, because the first chapter of Lord of the Rings is Bilbo's birthday party. But the second chapter is, well, the world building happens in the shadow of the past. So here I enjoy it. I don't know if there was a purposeful reference, but you know, it's Pretty not sure a coincidence. Yeah. And um, I was thinking of Galadriel and the amazing voiceover of Kate Blanchett in in the Lord of the Rings movies. Which mm-hmm. honestly, when I first read, like saw them in two thousand and one, like I wasn't, I didn't know exactly who Kate Blanchett was. She was in this movie called Elizabeth in the late nineties. So I'm like, she wasn't, you know, as major as she is now. So the Galadriel voiceover, my first reaction to the movies was, okay, this is interesting, but it sounds a little affected to me, but. Yesterday's voiceover, by yesterday I mean the first episode of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, while I was very thrilled to see Galadriel as a child, and I was very thrilled to see, um, you know, they, kind of, they have to do this summary, right, of what happened to lead to the current moment of the yeah. second age. That summary was, again, pretty well done in terms of, like, they chose, they made choices about which events to focus on, mm-hmm. and they kind of made it short. It was actually fairly manageable and the, you know the, the visuals were beautiful there was this one visual in red of like uh the spoils of the war after uh, the and it was just like it reminded me of the dark marshes and it's it was just, it's so well rendered it was a still image so they obviously didn't pour like millions of dollars into that image but it was just like stunning but the voiceover and the voice of the actor uh, playing, I think it was Galadriel's voiceover because mm-hmm. she's talking about her childhood. Yep. That didn't grab me. So I was like waiting to be grabbed because I was just, I couldn't help but compare it to that moment of the yeah. movie. So, and the actor who plays Galadriel, her name, hold on, I think I have it up, pulled up. It's, um, she's a Swedish actor of Welsh origin, I believe, uh, Morfid Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, she's good. I can't say she's incompetent. But again, like it's hard, it's hard to it's hard to just like get Kate Blanchett up my mind, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but not a bad beginning, you know. And I was just very, very thrilled. Like you know, the moment that I was most thrilled by that I like let out a loud whoop in the air was when I saw the maps. You know how much I love the maps. I was of, and, yeah. and you know, I hadn't actually seen in detail the maps of the Second Age to see all these amazing names that I've read about in text but not on map like the Sundering Seas and Belarion and Eregion and I just felt so much happiness that all these like you know you can't go wrong and the and the and the rendering the visual rendering of the maps was beautiful mm-hmm. um in terms of the structure of the two episodes I think they did a very smart thing slowly introducing the different races and populations I didn't know um, that we were going to see the Harfoots or the pre-Hobbits mm-hmm. or, you know, the kind of know that. I wasn't expecting it because no one talks about the Second Age in the literature and the Hobbits because I think at some point Tolkien even says that Hobbits really weren't in people's 
you know, until the third age at some point. So I wasn't expecting it, and I was pleasantly surprised. So they spent a good like I like the way they, like the first twenty minutes, our first seventeen minutes was on Galadriel, and you know, giving the history and talking about where Galadriel is right now, and then focusing on the Harfoots, and then they moved to. And I just again, I was surprised pleasantly to see Elrond. They showed they they showed him as they showed Frodo and the Shire, like in this very beatific surroundings. Reading of like reading reading from reading from um, the mythology of the elves about Middle Earth, I think, and it was like a beautiful passage. And I wasn't expecting them to show Elrond in that manner. I was like, I don't even have this impression of Elrond. And then wasn't he wasn't he was, actually writing the speech for Gilgalad? Oh yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I wasn't paying attention. To I thought, the yeah, I thought he right. was writing the speech for Gilgalad. But go, go on, go on, go on. But, yeah, but like the way they showed him, like in these beautiful surroundings, kind of reminded me of how they introduced Shodo in the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I was just laughing when he and Galadriel were talking, and I was like, oh my god, he's talking to his future mother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just having a good laugh about that idea, and um, yeah. So and then, oh my god, so. Oh my god, there's so much to talk about, but like I would say my favorite, my favorite kind of kingdom or um, you know, population or race was I have to say the dwarves. Um loved my favorite performance was by Durin the Fourth and his amazing wife Disa. I loved the actor they cast as Disa mm-hmm. and the humor and the enormity. To go, kind of go back to Khazad Dum and see it, like we saw Khazad Dum in the minds of Moria and the movies when they were already so decrepit, yeah. and the little bridge of the bridge of Khazad Dum was like the only hope for the Fellowship, and we know what a narrow escape that was when they were escaping from the Balrog, and now to see Khazad Dum in all its splendor was, and I think you know they showed all the world so beautifully, but the splendor of Kazadrum really drew me in. Yeah. Like I think, it, I could feel the ingenuity of the dwarves, and I felt I feel like dwarves have gotten the short shrift. So um, I think I was glad to see the dominance of the dwarves, and I know the second age is a glorious age for the dwarves. So I'm very excited to see how future episodes handle that. Mm-hmm. The 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 population or the race that I was less interested in was the race of men. I don't think I saw visually too much distinctive in the production design of that little village in the Southlands. I'm glad that we're in the Southlands to see. I, and I like the fact that they are referring in the Southlands to where evil might still be there, right? Because they they kind of supported, it seems like they supported Morgoth in the last war. So I liked that. And I also enjoyed that there are elvish ties not only to the world of men and to the but also the world of dwarves. So elves aren't simply depicted to be in their own world, disconnected from the rest of Middle Earth. They're actually forming allegiances and alliances. That because the movies are uh, in two thousand and one to three lead us to believe that elves and dwarves had a, have a historical enmity and they just don't get along. But here, Elrond, for me, the favorite and the most emotional and the best bell, the best rendered character moment in the, across the two episodes was between Elrond and, um, and Durin. You know, like how he won them over and like, I think the actor who played Durin the fourth just like responded like, to, to the humor in the situation really, really well. I didn't really enjoy that whole when they were trying to break no, the yeah. rock. <laughs> 
that wasn't that great. Um, but well, the, the stakes yeah. weren't that high, so who cares? What did he say? The, the stakes weren't that high. The stakes mm-hmm. weren't the stakes weren't that high. Um, also, I wasn't in terms of the other characters that were. I mean, there were so many interesting characters. Actually, you know, like the the Amazon um, website has like actually a good description of the main characters. If you look under uh, the Prime Video kind of like the character uh-huh. section, I would encourage people to check it out after watching the first two episodes because they they tell you there's so many more characters to come, Richard. Yeah. Like there's so many more, yeah. and um, I wasn't that gung ho about. Okay, so the Sundering Seas, when I saw the map, I was so excited, but visually, I just, I didn't know the seas and the battle in the seas, the little kind of monster and the people in this lifeboat. Um, I wasn't sure what was going on, honestly. I don't know where they came from. Um, and we'll learn about it, surely, in the future episodes, but this kind of, this kind of sensitive fat dude kind of who was with Galadriel and this Jack and Rose life, <laughs> Titanic life, <laughs> <laughs> uh, life draft towards the end. I wasn't sure, like, whatever. I, was, like, I wasn't too into all of that. Uh, I have my guesses about who the episode ends on, the, like the figure that we see at the end. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so Galadriel, I was mixed on. So to summarize, before I hand it over to you, Galadriel, I was mixed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the world of the men, I liked Aaron Deer. I want to know more about him. Um, and I liked the the woman who played Bronwyn. I, I, I liked that. Um, in terms of the plotting from that world, I didn't believe. I thought it was too much of a very easy uh, where they show the son of Bronwyn, Theo, pick up, like, discover that that. Yeah. You know, this last kind of this, this uh, what do you call it? Uh, this trinket, well, more than a trinket, of which well, is of Morgoth. It's the hilt of a, of a sword. The hilt of a, okay. But it's Morgoth, right? Like it's, it, well, it, it has, it, it, I think it has the markings of Sauron. Sauron. Yeah. Right. Sauron. Right. Because, like, you know, when they show his blood trickling, it gets yeah. activated and mm-hmm. you hear the dark tongues. I didn't really, I, I think the way he found it, like we suddenly see he and his friend go into the barn and like say that something is there. I don't know where that came from. So that I found This is, this is all made up. This, yeah, this is all made up. Yeah. It made up a lot and that at least they, they didn't give it a preference. So anyway, so that I, I'm, I, I, in the world of men, I'm a B. World of dwarves, I'm an A. Uh, the world of just the elves. Actually, I really enjoyed the two elvish kingdoms that we saw and I'm kind of a B plus on those. And who else am I missing? Um, oh, the Hobbits. And oh, I love the production design of. Um, I want to know more about the Harfoots than mm-hmm. the pre Hobbits. And I, li- I liked how they rendered the world. And of course, I want to talk to you about the Stranger. All right. So here's here's my brief take on the show. Um, like you, I tried to stay away from. Most spoilers, right? I I only saw the um, the teaser that they put out in the Super Bowl. So that's 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 all I I, I knew of what the story was going to be. So I did know that Galadriel featured into the story, um, and of course, Second Age. Uh, what comes to mind is um, Numenor. Uh, the the forging of the rings, um, you know, all of that stuff. Right from the beginning, I th- I was stunned. 
I was really stunned in a good way. Uh, just because I... I kind of... And we talked about this before. I kind of knew that they were probably going to do a prologue, right? Because we saw that picture with the with the trees. Um, <laughs> just watching it in real life, quote-unquote real life, uh, it was fantastic. It was... Wow, just being in Valinor and seeing the trees in all their splendor, it was fantastic. So that, that entire prologue was great. Um, they did fast forward a lot. Uh, I mean, a lot. They jumped over Feanor. They jumped over the burning of, of the ships. They bur- they jumped over Helcaraxa. They, they jumped over a bunch of stuff. They just, yeah, stuff, stuff, stuff happened. Wars, and then they got rid of Sauron uh, and, and Morgoth. And I appreciate that they mentioned Morgoth. I appreciate that they kind of showed how the trees were felled. That was all great. And then the structure was... Uh, I, at the beginning, I kind of... I, I was thinking... This this feels a bit too jumbly, but I kind of get why they're doing it. So many characters, so many different places that they have to go back and forth. Um, a lot of travel by map. I get that, um, and that's fine. It's just a, it takes a, a bit of getting used to the whole um, going back and forth. Uh, there's so much information coming at you at the same at, at the same time that you kind of have to. It's it's a bit overwhelming in the beginning. Um, not that I'm not used to it because. Of course, Game of Thrones is famous for that, especially in the beginning uh, uh, seasons. There's just you're just thrown into the action, and you you, you just have to catch up, basically. Um, so it's fine. I I, I, I kind of got used to it by the second episode, and and it was fine. Um, I I basically enjoyed every single portrayal. I was fine with Galadriel. I, I, I get the bias with Kate Blanchett. I, I totally understand that, but I think that that Morfred Clark is is doing is doing she's doing a really good job, uh, especially the way that they're characterizing Galadriel in in the show, which is completely different from what we're used to, um, and it's it's enticing. It gives us it gives us the goods in in terms of special effects, in terms of visual effects, production design. Um, costume, uh, makeup—it's—it's it, you—you see every single penny on the screen. Um, the music is amazing. How how sure that the he did the the um the theme for the show, and then the music is by Bear Bear. Ah, I had it here. Bear Bear McCreary. Yeah, Bear McCreary. yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so he he did the music for 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 the show, um, but but it it's I think it, it it makes sense with what came before, with what we know from the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit. It's it feels it's not exact, but it f- still feels that we're in the same universe, um, and that's a very difficult needle to thread. Because, like you said, this is this is a show that's coming out twenty years after that movie. Those movies came out, so um, they they not only have to make people who love those movies feel comfortable with this new show, but they also have to make it their own. 
And I up to up to now, I think they've been able to do that. Um, so yeah, so just watching the elves and all their splendor, the dwarves and all their splendor, um, I think we're in for a really great ride. I have some quibbles with some things that I that I saw with the show, but all in all, I I think this is gonna be this is gonna be a really big show. This is gonna be yeah. a really big show. Um, it it it's a bunch of information, but I think. Just comparing it to to the original text, which is really dense, I think that they they've been able to distill it to a point where they can get new people who probably haven't even seen the movies. They could probably get new people into this show. So, yeah, I I'm really excited, yeah, just, and yeah. I'm really excited to dig into everything else with you. Yeah, go ahead. They know what are large gargantuan task they had in front of them and to add so many new characters takes a certain amount of guts mm-hmm. you know because you're adding like you know like i don't even know like you know there was the watch warden for example and like, there were like there, there were some characters like you know like galadriel's brother we know what like that, that he's real but then there were so many like all of that like the whole the, the southlanders you know all of that was new mm-hmm. um and so they have they did a great job from the first two episodes balancing existing characters and existing lore and supplementing it without having the supplementary lore take over the existing lore. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's working in, in good calibration and precision, which is like very, you know, you know, kudos to the writers and yeah. to I think the Tolkien estate was also, it looks like, involved in giving notes on like making sure that whatever new things they introduced did not go against Tolkien's vision. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you know, I'm sure there was a lot of... And, you know, even the, the showrunners are kind of new. They, they didn't yeah, I was just going to say that. It's amazing that they trusted these two guys who have barely done anything with yeah. such a big property. And I, I think, at least with these two shows, I think they, they just knocked it out of the park i mean of course jay bayona um he's a big part of this so he set the tone for the entire thing yeah um yeah and and i i don't think uh we we can diminish his input because he's literally the director of this two-hour movie right yeah um and he set the tone for the rest of the of the episodes that are coming um but jay bayona he's you know he's He's a proven director. He's done a bunch of other stuff. But these two guys, yeah. they, they, I didn't even know who they were until now. But like the writer of the second episode is Jennifer Hutchison, mm. who's worked on Breaking Bad, yep. on like yeah. you know Mad Men, on like you know all the top shows. So yeah, and I've, I've been following her on Twitter, and like she's like so they balance out people who are new, people who are established. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just glad that, like, it wasn't just an indulgence. I'm just yeah. so relieved. It's yeah. not indulgence. Yeah. And one quick thing, like, I, I, I want to make sure I don't diss Galadriel too much. But, like, she was so badass in that oh, the scene where she's climbing the ice mountain and we see her close up for the first time. Amazing shot. Mm-hmm. And I loved how she dismissed the snow cave troll in six shots. The choreography of, like, six. Mm-hmm. Really well done. And I was like, okay. The show knows what it's doing, nice. and yeah. So I, you know, I just feel like I'm, I have to wait more 
to mm-hmm. see whether I'm completely won over by her performance, whether she can hold her own. I just don't. I find her face a little bit generic, and it's a very beautiful face, but it's a little bit generic for me. <laughs> um, so it's I'm just waiting because, like, for me, the other characters, like the character playing Arondir, and the, as I said, like even um, you know that guy's you know, like, for, that guy Arondir, he's from Puerto Rico. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. He's he was born and raised in Puerto Rico. He was he, he had very soulful eyes, and also I want I want to give a quick shout out. In, in, in addition to Disa, I I wanted to talk, um the I was a little bit annoyed by Nori. Yeah, I'm just like I guess I don't like adolescents as much, and they've got to be really good. But like Nori's mother was played by the Sri Lankan actor, and I thought she held her own really well. Like she kind of was giving me the kind of um, sass. Something different, something different. Like she was a sassy hobbit. She was sassy, but like also just because the elves are sometimes so serious and like <laughs> and Shakespearean. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, um, that I just want like I I wasn't I don't I don't think we had that kind of equivalent character female hobbit, for mm. example. So right. um, and Nori is okay. The last thing we have to talk about before uh, is what is your take on the stranger? Ah, so uh, at first I. Th- I was thinking, is this Gandalf? Yeah, um, and then, and then I don't know because it can't be Sauron, um, or could it? I, I don't know. I don't, I have no idea who that character is because the only the only race they haven't introduced is are the Istari, are the wizards. Uh-huh. Yeah. So and I don't I, f- I forget I forget the lore, but I know that the wizards have been around for at least two ages. And I would if they're if they're bringing back Galadriel and if they're bringing back Elrond um, and Sauron, I don't mm-hmm. know how they don't bring back one of the most beloved characters, Gandalf. So and we know that you know Gandalf has a history with the Hobbits, and maybe it started with Nori, you know. So. Possible. I, I, I'm curious. I, I'm not going to read too much ahead, but I'm going to because you know the actor, the cast in many shots looks so much like a younger Ian McKellen. Mm. So I, I, I'm, I'll be interested in knowing who the stranger is. Well, well, so so here's the thing with with the whole Gandalf thing. Um, as far as I know, the study didn't reach Middle Earth until the Third Age. Oh, okay. So. If if it is if it ends up being Gandalf, um, maybe it's one of those changes that they made to to the lore. Who knows? So here's here's one thing that I really liked about this show, and it's that it it keeps with the spirit of the Lord of the Rings and the lore, especially in the themes. Um, so you have you have themes of of loyalty, especially with the Harfoots. Uh, you have themes of and, and and Galadriel you know she's expected to be loyal to the king but you also have pride uh like Feanor you know Feanor was one of the most prideful characters in the entire uh uh middle earth lore um which was one of his biggest downfalls but you see that in Galadriel which is which is interesting because she hated Feanor. I mean, she she hated his guts, and then to see this same fire burning in her eyes, um, even if it's for for an evil character, it, it's still it's 
it's uh, it's very interesting. You you see uh, that that feeling of revenge, the feeling of longing, um, that scene when they're reaching Valinor and and on the ship. That is yeah. That was beautiful. Um, it, I don't. It's one of those things that you read and you imagine it one way, and when you see it depicted, it is the same or probably better than what you thought. Um, it was it was incredible. It was incredible. Um, and then you also start seeing political machinations and. Um, uh seeding doubt and um hints of love forbidden love you know all these themes are core themes of the lord of the rings and and its lore and i really really appreciated that um speaking of themes uh i don't know if you know did you see you, you saw the opening of the second episode right the, the so the the opening title sequence that was going to be my talking point too. It was so cool. So so different. So you, the way I think they achieve that is using sound vibrations, right? Right. Have yeah. you have you have you seen those where they they put sand on on top of a, 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 a I don't know like a circular desk and underneath the desk is some type of uh, resonance vibration device and they they dial in a certain frequency of sound and it makes the sand just moves into the the different wavelengths that it's it's uh, it's getting from from whatever's vibrating and so what I took from it was um, this is how the world was made in in in, in middle earth wow. with, with the song of the Ainur right Wow. Okay, so, I didn't think about that. So I wow. thought I thought that opening was great, uh, especially if you, if you know this, it's I think it's amazing. I think that's a great interpretation, but also visually, it's so different and it's so modern in a sense that I actually thought that it was very cool and it was like that's a great way to kind of put your own stamp on the series in the opening credits, mm -hmm. and it just it looks like nothing like that. Like the visual fantasy yeah. tropes of your in the beginning, you're, you're, it, it took me a while to kind of understand what was going on, and then I, yeah, when it pulls back and it shows the two trees. Oh, well, you know what? I didn't see that part. I guess okay. Um, and, and I and I saw that that it was changing depending on how it was vibrating. I said, "All oh, right, I see what these guys are doing." That probably is. That's a great. I think you're probably right. Like that's. It's. I think it's a very, very valid interpretation of like the original song of the Ainur, mm -hmm. because that makes sense too, right? Like that they if they refer to uh, Morgoth, who's uh, Melkor. So okay, yeah, 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 exciting. I mean, I, I, I hope that they have almost different opening credit visualizations every episode. Hmm. Uh, every, we'll see. Because I, 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 I know that those are expensive. So, but yeah. whatever, Amazon has the money. Who cares, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very strong choice, and I, I forget what the. I don't think they had that opening credit. Um, I don't think they they don't they normally don't have traditional opening credits in pilots. Um, but yeah, I think that that was a very cool choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, Arondir because I I think I I don't know if you followed what was going on before the show premiered. But mm. so okay, so 
ever since they put out pictures of the new characters online, uh, so people were up in arms saying elves can't be black mm-hmm. and uh, Harfwoods can't be black. And uh, so this this thing with um, they're saying that now Lord of the Rings is too woke, you know, because it's in, it's including people from diverse cultures. Um, I th- I hope, I hope, because uh, th- there still are are going to be people who, who kind of suck, but but I hope that after watching these two episodes, they have come around, because out of all the stories that were going on, uh, and all the stories that were invented for the show, I think this is one of the most compelling ones. Uh, I think the the two actors are great. This uh, this forbidden love story makes sense. Um, it's not the first time that it happens in Middle Earth, and that they actually reference it in the show. Um, and this platonic thing where they just look at each other and don't say anything, but say so much just by just by being there and almost saying it, but not saying it. Um, I think it's 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 great acting. It's um, it's great direction, because this is something that that you have to tell your actor. This is what you, you, I want you to achieve in this scene, um, and it propels the story in a different way than the political stuff and the magic stuff. They are in this different adventure uh, that eventually has to basically come together with with whatever's going on on the other side. But um, it gives us some some separation and a way to to follow a different story that I think is is I think it's very interesting. Um, so yeah, so that's what was going on in the Twitterverse while you were going la 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 la. I don't want to hear anything. That's what was going on. People were dissing the show because of its inclusion, basically. Uh, I don't understand people. I mean, also like. Are these the same people that love Bridgerton? Because I thought that was a little bit, <laughs> I mean, it was, like too, it was random and kind of had like, just, um, I don't know. I, this was completely earned in Lord of the Rings. And I, I, I was, I thought like, because we have Galadriel and Nori and, and, and um, Elrond, I was like, getting a little bit, Oh my god! Like blonde hair and mm-hmm. light eyes, and like, it's like it's just too much. And like I was very, very um, welcoming of all the characters of color. And yeah. um, I thought Arundir was like the idea that he was also like he gave me kind of ranger vibes. And you know, I, I mm-hmm. think it, it fit the character as well. It, it also tells me that like characters of color. You know, of course, we don't know what the theory of race was in middle earth at the time so the, the show is making a case for it but uh for me like as i said like the characters i pointed out already like and the two women of color that i pointed out disa and uh the mother of uh, nori like it, it, the acting was so great and it wasn't simply because of the stereotypes you attached to them i thought they were just great actors and even aaron deer um I'm curious about his journey as an elf, you know, and whether, like, you know, to which elven realm he belongs. I think he it may have been mentioned, but I, I think missed it's Sindar. It. Uh, I think he's a Sindar. It's elf. Sindar. Yeah, he's a Sindar so. elf. Okay, but well then you know, like, the portrayal of other Sindar elves has been white. I think so. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I, f- I feel like Twitter is going to be Twitter and people are going to say that out of provocation, if nothing else. And I know that like woke is almost like a bad word now, but um, <laughs> I think the show, did, I think the show did well by its times and I want to see even more. I think I peeked ahead into some of the future character, uh, future casting and it's still mostly white, I think. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, but... here's the thing. It, it After watching the show, it just it doesn't feel forced. It feels it, it feels like it's just it's part of part of this universe. Um, yeah, and so and where that is most obvious is with the Harfoots. I think with the Harfoots, you see like Nori as the as the daughter of like her father and her um, her mother are like of different skin colors, mm-hmm. and um, so I think in that in the Harfoot world, it makes it. I could see the. The, the different races, like in terms of the race, how as how we define it, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that felt very organic. Yeah, I also enjoyed uh, this this whole um, feeling, uh, the same thing as as in the movies, where you see something that has been there for hundreds, thousands of years, like these towers where the elves keep a watch on the southern on the southern lands. Um, and where it came from, uh, how long have they been there just watching? Uh, it, it just felt lived in. It felt, it, again, it felt like this was just part of this world. Um, that was a beautiful shot, like, uh, well, whatever, of a rendering of when the, and the, when the watch warden is talking with, uh, Arinda, Ar- 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 oh, I'm forgetting, Arundir. Um, and talking about right, right before you guys the news that um, the High King has said mm-hmm. the war is over, like that view is so beautiful, and he kind of references how twenty years ago it was nothing, and or, 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 like, basically I, I kind of believed it. I kind of believed um, uh, I believed what those outposts look like, and I kind of satisfied my curiosity because when I was reading the Lord of the Rings books. When they talked about this character Sirdan in the Grey Havens, I was always wondering what like what is life like in the Grey Havens mm-hmm. before you know after which the ship set sail for the west. So they gave us these outposts here, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just mentioning uh, characters like Feanor and mm. Morgoth, we get a glimpse of Feanor's hammer. With yes. scenarios. What did you think of the hammer? Can I ask you that? Like, what do you think of the actual design of the hammer? I liked it. I, I, because here, here's the thing. It's one of those. It's one of those tools that that goes into legend, right? Um, and just to think, this subtle, smallish tool was able to forge three of the most, or well, three. Yeah, three of the most beautiful gems to have ever existed in the universe. It's I don't know. It's it's one of those. It, just call me a nerd. I I love it. I love I love those little details. It's I don't know. It was it, it's just great because okay, this is something that I have read for so many years. Um, maybe a casual viewer won't appreciate it as much as I do um, but just the mention of this thing and the mention of Feanor and all that history and just that little scene because it's just it was just a little 
itty bitty scene where they just mention it offhand. Um, it's great, and then and then Celebrimbor's there, and yeah, the the, the timeline is still a bit wishy washy, uh, especially like I said in in that in that prologue, they they skipped through so they they fast forwarded through so many things important things, um, just yada yada war and yada yada they got to Middle Earth and that's it. Um, I feel like there's something missing, especially for me, in terms of the character of Galadriel. Because um, yes, I get that she she uh, she wants revenge for her brother. I get that, but she has so much more than that that's driving her. Um, she, she she came to Middle Earth to to be the uh, uh, to be the ruler of a specific area and she hasn't achieved that yet um she was pissed at feanor because of what happened uh she had to cross the the, the ice sheets of felcaraxe where many of her people died so, so she's carrying all of that but we don't see it she kind of mentions it in the second episode she mentions it to to the whatever his this guy's name is um yeah but i i f i would have loved to have at least have seen something um i do love that moment where she puts the helm on on top of the that big helmet mound after the war that that's mm -hmm. that's a good visual uh that kind of encapsulates all of that but um I think that the, what they're trying to portray her as in the show needs a, a little bit more context, I think. Yeah, which is why I'm not fully buying Galadriel. I think that's one of the reasons. I think what you're saying is that now I'm thinking and makes sense why I'm not fully buying Galadriel yet. They made a strong choice, but now they have to kind of figure it out over mm -hmm. the coming episodes. Mm -hmm. But also, I was reading somewhere that... Um, they're going to kind of really kind of condense the timeline of the second age. It's not going to last whatever, 3,500 years. But I, I was reading at the same time, right before the call, like right before our recording, uh, the, in the books, the, the, the tale of the years uh, appendix and on the second age, it's just a little bit confusing, like from thinking of a TV writer's hat on. Because um, they mentioned Sauron's defeat two or three times in that in the tale of the years, second age, and that one page where they have all the years listed. It's a little bit confusing. So, from if you're adapting it to television, I think you may have to simplify it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you know, you also want to kind of have characters that you become emotionally invested in. And like you know, we know that elves live longer than men, for example. So they may have to maybe that because you know in lord of the rings it, it, everything happened in one year right and the hobbit movies everything happened also in a very short period of time so you know it's a different challenge mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well i'm excited for numenor i'm excited for what's coming next uh yes. i can't wait for I'm curious about how to end the season and, and figure out what the episode uh, that's going to be the start of the second season because I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm gonna go with the flow and not think too ahead. Yeah. I. I think I know where they might end this first season. Um. But it could all change because, like you said, if they're compressing the timeline, then 
I don't know. I don't know. Do you have a guess uh, who the figure is that uh, Galadriel saw at the very end of the season? Of well, it's two? definitely a Numenorian. Yeah. But who, oh. who it is, I have no idea. Do you think it's, uh, I don't know, was, was Celeborn a Numenorian? No, Celeborn was, no, he was an elf. He was her uh, her husband. Right. Okay. So uh, Numenorian, uh, yeah, they're men, right? Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. True. So we'll see. Yeah. I just want to, uh, I, I, I also want to know how far after Numenor was created is this show taking place? It's very unclear. I could not figure out from looking at the appendix of Tale of the Years and looking at the, uh, again, I'm not done a deep investigation, but I think it's not clear at all whether it's like the beginning of the second age or whether it's, I don't know, year 500. Mm-hmm. Because Second age in the books is thirty five hundred years. So, yeah. Uh, at some point, the rings were forged. We haven't reached that stage yet, and uh, the one ring hasn't been forged yet. So, some, it's all going to happen. But you know, I think Gilgalad plays into that as well. I think, and so there has to be more. Do- so, I think maybe I don't know. I don't know when they're going to show Sauron in person. If they are going to show Sauron in person, oh, I'm pretty still- sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Anatar's going to show there somewhere. Oh, then they were. They are. They're not. I, I'm pretty sure they are. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so excited because like I want to see Sauron. Like, that actor has so much on his shoulders. It's like it's a big responsibility yeah. to play Sauron. Oh my god, that's a big responsibility. So, speculation aside, are you excited for what's coming up next? Yes, very much so. And I am glad it's a weekly release now. It's on Fridays, so I can take my time. And I can probably watch it on Friday and then digest it on Saturday. So, and also just like read the discourse in between the weeks. So, yes, I'm excited. All right. So, how about if I have you back after what? October 13th, I think it is. The last episode, yeah, sure, or the fourteenth, yeah, yeah, um, and we can we can do a post mortem on the show. Yeah, we'll kind of get into a lot more. There's so much more to talk about. All right, well, Doctor Meta, uh, if you have anything else to say, please. This is this is your soapbox. No, well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, again, loved loved the extended discussion. Thank you for letting me talk about RRR and Ms. Marvel. I guess a quick plug, since we talked about, um, like I talked about the Bengali earlier, but right now as we speak, um, there's like a major flood situation in Pakistan, which is like being really ignored. And uh, I think, um, you know, amongst our listeners, whoever is willing to kind of read up on it. And if you feel like uh, donate resources, because it's been like pittance that, you know, major countries have sent Pakistan's way and there's been a lot of vocal protests on social media about the treatment of, um, you know, it's, it's like a, a displacement of like five times the population of many, many countries uh, as displaced by these floods. So yeah, if you'll go to NPR and NPR has some links for donations, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how that situation evolves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's terrible. What they're going through is absolutely terrible. All right. Well, where can people find you on social media? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at um, 
Meta, it's M-E-H-T-A underscore critic. Uh, Instagram, I'm not that active, but you can find me. Uh, it's the same, but there's no underscore. So it's at Metacritic. Uh-huh. And at Facebook, it is, um, just look for my name. I think there's many people with my name. We can look for uh, Creative Lives, C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E-L-I-V-E-S. All right. And you can find us on Twitter. That's at Media Review Pod. Media, R-E-V-U-E pod. And you can send us emails with questions, comments, and suggestions to mediareviewpod at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message by calling 407-603-5847. Please don't forget to subscribe to our feed, rate, and review the pod with five beautiful stars. Again, Ritesh, thank you so much for being here. This is great. Uh, and I'm looking forward to our next conversation, man. It's great. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it too, Richard. All right. Now, the promise of a paradise in the undying lands can be alluring. I know that. But pride, vengeance, and a desire to rule might make you think twice about it. You can debate whether or not to sail into the West all you want. But in the meantime, don't forget to breathe. Till next time, have a good one. Bye-bye.